0: And welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And welcome to the show. We Ta-da. are recording second episode for mm-hmm. today. You know what has not happened yet? What? No trains.
1: <gasps> you know we're going to get four while I we're know. recording this next episode, though.
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs> Especially because, like, they're actually going through the process of pulling the, um, the grains out of the local storage So, it's all that's why they're rolling so slowly. Uh I also think there's something wrong with the tracks around the village because there's been a lot of the repair guys around here lately. And also, doing upgrades
1: too, so maybe just doing work in general.
0: Yeah. Maintenance the time of year. Yeah, that's the perfect time of year to do it is when there's an increase of traffic on all the tracks. (laughs) No one said people had to be logical. We know that. (laughs) Very true. But uh, no big choo choos. So yeah, we got that going for us. I know. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we can keep this rolling. Yeah. I kind of don't want to strike for these poor guys going into the holiday season. I know. But it would be great for our recording that schedule. Is <laughs> <true>. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. But on that note, how would I tell you a story? Yes, please. Because you went first last week, so I'm gonna go first this week. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so Uh, One of the Instagram accounts that I follow posts a lot of Mental Floss articles. So Mental Floss is also becoming the life science to me uh, that is life science to you. Um, So they recently posted an article about what each country's name means in its native language, sometimes literally. And so that was my jumping off point for today. So for all the cartography fans out there, this one's for you. Pour one out from my map homies.
1: (laughs) Because we have so many, those, <laughs> That one person's like, woo! Yeah,
0: no. uh, there's a lot of ways I could have gone in the story, so bear with me. Uh, it might it gets a little bumpy as a rabbit hole, which is odd for my, but it's the spirit of a rabbit hole. So let's start with some definitions. Uh, these come from the Canadian Cartography Association. Because there is a Canadian Cartography Association. There's an
1: association for (laughs) For everything. everything.
0: I know. Uh, Cartography is the processes around the conception, production, dissemination, and study of maps. It requires the gathering, evaluation, and processing of source data. And cartographers are also responsible for the design of maps, and then the drawing and reproduction of them. And maps are, of course, the result of cartographic efforts. (laughs) Modern maps are a blend of science, art, and technology, and it's no longer just some dude with, like, a scratch of paper and a pen writing up what he thinks it looks like.
1: But you know what, like, what was I listening to? They were talking about maps, and they're like, you know, early maps are surprisingly accurate for what they they were, were, right? Like, Yes. True.
0: Because I think a lot of people just, like, went out and walked it.
1: (laughs) They're like, okay. But, like, you know, you know, fairly accurate for nooks and valleys and, like, anyways, like, yeah, they're just hmm. surprisingly accurate for... Yes. We need to have more faith in our ancestors. Yeah. But generally, I agree. Well, it is surprising. <laughs> Especially for a bunch of people who got lost, and that's how, you know,
0: white people tended <laughs> up here. <laughs> Wandered around. So, uh, I'm me, so buckle up for some history about maps and map making. Don't look like that. This is fun stuff. Uh, The oldest known map anywhere of anything can be found in the Lecaux cave system in France. And that has been dated to be 16,500 years old. It's all those hand paintings on the caves that were like, oh, look, human's first effort into art was also human's first effort into map making. But the oldest known portable maps come from uh, clay tablets that were produced in Babylonia around 2300 B.C. Speaking of first, the first road map comes from Egypt circa 1160 BC and is called the Turn Papyrus Map. It shows people where they could get off the river and travel between river bends. So basically, the portage trails, if you will. Uh, The Greeks had this whole mapping thing down and created highly detailed maps. Uh, With the exception of a few modern dummies, we all agree that the earth is round based off the work of Greek cartographers. And it was generally accepted. As fact, that you know, sphere not flat, uh, at least as early as Aristotle's age, so around 350 BC.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And then the internet came along, and we're back to square one. <laughs>
1: See my Flat Earthers episode? Yes. <laughs>
0: Around the end of the first century AD, Claudius Ptolemaeus published Guide to Geography, which remained the authoritative reference on world geography for literally centuries. And it wasn't until the Renaissance that people started building on Ptolemaeus' work. The only major change that was made between Ptolemaeus and the Renaissance was a question of orientation. So during the medieval ages, maps tended to place Jerusalem at the center of the image, which religion makes sense. And the area we now view as being to the east was actually found in the upper quadrants of the map. Hmm. So they rotated it 45 degrees counterclockwise. Uh, Historians consider the first modern map printing to come from this era, when the Rudimentium Novatorium was printed in 1475, and thanks to Viking exploration in the 12th century, The northern Atlantic started appearing on maps with more frequency as of that point. After Ptolemaeus, the next rock star in cartography was Sebastian Munster, who worked out of Basel as Switzerland in the 16th century. In 1540, he published Geographia, and it became the new standard for the world map. Map making in this age briefly benefited greatly from the development of the printing press and engraved printing techniques allowed for quick reproduction of maps. Remember last week or like a couple weeks ago you said like we need a portmanteau to like refer people back to like old episodes? This is like my publishing episode from like the New Year's.
1: <laughs> I know, and we just, you know, fat flat, flat earthers. earthers. Tulpas from the
0: last episode. It all comes yeah. around in the end. Uh, the reason that map making took this giant leap forward in the age of Munster wasn't a coincidence, uh, because the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries are known as the age of exploration. Europeans are heading out into the wider world and documenting what they found there and it was around this time that compass lines and other navigation aids started appearing on maps the first true world map is generally credited to Martin Waldsmuller and he created it in 1507 the map uses an expanded Ptolemaeus' projection and was the first map to use the name America for the new World.
1: America
0: America uh, we owe our cur- current literal worldview to Gerardus Mercator of Flanders, now Belgium. He created a cylindrical map that was used widely for navigation after its publication in 1569. And all the maps you see in schools, for example, are the Mercator projections. Modern maps, in terms of systematic data collection, got their start in the 17th century and became much more common in the 18th and 19th centuries when national programs of documenting land started. So, where are my borders? Who am I going to go to war with to maintain them? Yeah. It was really the start of like these national modern map-making projects. Uh, it wasn't until the First World War, however, that things got really cooking, and that is because this was the era of aerial observations. So a lot of those nicks and crannies of waterways yeah. were better observed with uh, aerial photography. The Geographic Information System, or GIS, emerged in the 1970s and 80s. In these systems, the actual map display is separate from analysis, which is a massive leap forward in the philosophy of map making, if you think about it. So previously, paper maps would show you what a coastline of a country would look like, and then indicate on it where the sea monsters could be found. So there you have the image of the map, and also an analysis of the map, all in one spot. Now a GIS system will show you the coastline of a country, and then you can call up information about any associated hazards around that stretch of land. So the map is just the factual image and the analysis is held separately. And it's the GIS's that are like, now what everyone uses when they're developing maps and GPS systems, it all yeah. comes down to these big databases of uh, visual data. So, you tell me you would like to be a cartography when you grow up, Andy? I know. Sure. Yes. You want to be a map maker. I I know, I know. It's in your soul. So what does this mean? Uh, The old apprentice model of map making is a thing of the past for the most part, so be prepared to put in some time at school. Formal cartography training can be found in either a college or university setting, in Canada at least. College programs are generally two to three years long, and you'll qualify as a technician slash technologist. You'll take courses in cartography, but also in math, computers, photography, and communication. The college route is very practical and hands-on in developing your skills, and you'll also find complementary programs to cartography, such as surveying, remoting, sensing, and photogametry. Uh, so really, if you actually want a career, go to college, not university, which can be said about so many fields.
1: Which is why <laughs> I went fields. to yes. college and not university.
0: Which is why I should have gone to college and not university. Your dad's like, I know! Hey, what did I tell you? <laughs> University training for cartography is harder to pin down as there are currently no universities in Canada offering a cartography program. Rather, students take cartography components in larger programs such as geography and several branches of engineering. Cartography experience in university can be attained through your BA or your BSc, depending on which program you're in, and if you are really dedicated and or you can't find a job in cartography, which some of us, history was our experience. Uh, you can stay on in university and complete a master's or a PhD. Of course you can. <laughs> of course you can. Because at these levels, you're able to tailor your, your studies more. So you can spend more of your time and money on maps.
1: Maps, maps. Yeah. I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map. Oh, my God. showing that's a... Dora. There it is.
0: Yeah. Uh, there is an entire academic discipline around the process of map making. Research around maps touches on cognitive interpretations, mathematical interpretations, the history of cartography, and perceptual technical aspects of maps and map making. You can attend cartography conferences and publish in journals, if that's what your little heart so desires. And of course, cartography has regional, national, and international professional associations for you to get your nerd on with other map nerds. But let's say you're itching to make a map of your own. Sure! Yep. First of all, there are a million online tools that will help you map everything from your property to your Minecraft territory. And don't at me, I have no fucking clue what Minecraft is. It's just that's a really popular Google result, so I felt I needed to mention it. Uh, A couple of years ago, The Atlantic interviewed Tom Harrison, who is a mapmaker out of California, to understand what goes into the process. Uh, Harrison makes maps of California uh, hiking and outdoor trails. like outdoorsy people so i don't understand the appeal at all but he seems to be making a living off of it so good for you tom because our world is so heavily photographed harrison starts out with what is already out there so this involves a lot of research into the gis systems i was talking about and other previously produced maps he cross-checks everything to see how it all fits together and one of his projects generally takes about two years Uh, So, while he's mapping out these hiking trails in California, his on-the-ground tools generally include uh, a measuring tool and a GPS. And that's really all you need. Go for a little bit of a wander and make some notes. Harrison stresses that his methods are constantly changing based on the information being fed into the geographic information systems. But basically what he'll do is he'll pull the basic map from GIS, the one that's already there, into his Adobe Illustrator program, and then he goes to town making additions and corrections based on his own collected data. For Harrison, the key to a good map lies in what is included, but more importantly, what is not included. So he finds modern maps provide too much detail that is distracting from the purpose of the document. So if you're driving somewhere, you need a roadmap. You don't need all the topographical information and the hiking trails conversely if you are hiking you need the hiking trails topographical information so there's a time and a place for everything so he says by stressing the big slash important things his maps are more helpful to the average user who are the outdoorsy type looking for hiking trails and campgrounds um and so his projects are really geared towards that here's the thing about maps though a lot of it is bs First of all, they're created by humans, and we're collectively terrible at fine detail work, just in general. Uh, Secondly, the world is round, and round doesn't do flat very well, uh, which is what maps are. So (laughs) it's just a square peg round hole. It's never going to actually be good. Uh, And we're trying to squeeze massive land masses onto tiny pieces of paper that we can hold in our hand. So there's a level of detail that is just never going to make it there. Also, uh, we're terrible it just in general as like people, so maps are chock full of bias. The Mercator projection, which is what we all generally use and it is used by Google and Microsoft, is based on straight lines that are great for sea navigation but terrible for proportion. So on the Mercator projection, for example, Greenland looks to be about the same size as Africa, but in fact, Africa is about 14 times larger than Greenland. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy there. Greenland is most men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Arno Peter, a German historian, posits that the Mercator projection became the pattern card for all Western maps because it centralized and exaggerated the size of Northern Europe, which was a massive ego boost to those living in those areas. And so we are just living with the consequences of the fragile male ego. <laughs> White people. Yeah. as <laughs> 2 white people. as 2 white people who acknowledge a lot of our shortfalls. Uh, also, fans of the West Wing will remember the whole Mercator slash Peter's projection debate from the Big Block of Cheese Day episode. I know. You don't know, but the fans out there, they know. <laughs> and uh, really, who is to say that North is up and South is down? And with all the positive connotations that come along with it, we are, after all, just on a giant marble floating through space, so...
1: Who knows? Spinning at a speed that would fling us off. While you could be forgiven
0: for thinking that this is another Eurocentric worldview, the Koreans seem to have been the first one to have assigned north as up and south as down. The uh, Kangnido map, circa 1402, is the first one to show this up-and-down orientation. And anthropologists think that this is because looking north was associated with looking at the emperor, so naturally you would look up to them or look to the top of something. Mm. So, Hey, not a white person fault. Everyone gets one. (laughs) Uh, Regardless, though, perception is reality, so there is a burgeoning interest in all things cartography thanks to our increasingly globalized world. Map collection is becoming more and more popular, according to CNN Travel, and it's possible to find specimens that are of high quality in terms of both physical, like actual stat, like condition and content. There are map traders who specialize in finding and selling maps to collectors. And if you're looking to start a collection of something, antique maps feature, um, featuring currently developing countries is where it's at. And they're not all that expensive really to get on the ground floor. So specifically, You're going to be on the lookout for maps of Brazil, Russia, India, and China, because these are developing countries, and things are changing within them. So the whole... Especially Russia. Russia, uh, Brazil, the whole forestry issue is changing the the landscape there. So the idea is buy a map of these countries now, and in a few years when it looks completely different, you'll be sitting on a gold mine that you'll be able to sell for profit. (laughs) But old maps are also a big deal. So you remember the Rudimentium Novitorium map, the one that historians consider to be the first modern printed map? Well, it sold in 2003 for about $829,000. I believe it. Yeah. Uh, So where do you start your collecting? If you are looking to collect, uh, consider heading to Maastricht, Netherlands for the annual European Fine Art and Antiques Fair. In 2013, there were 260 booths at the fair from 20 countries, and the event uh, is specifically designed for these uh, dealers to sell antique maps, classic and modern art, and jewelry. So it's viewed as one of the best places in the world to find antique maps if you're looking to start a collection. Speaking of collections, King George III was a fan of maps, so collected them madly. <laughs>
1: Let's see what you did there.
0: <laughs> uh, which is how the British Library ended up with one of the premier cartography collections in the world. Uh, other top collections are held by the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris, followed by the Library of Congress in the United States. Makes sense. Uh, fun fact lightning round. Woohoo! Uh, early maps often showed towns that do not slash did not exist. Map makers would throw them in so that if someone copied their maps, they could sue them for copyright infringement. And these types of towns are known as paper towns. towns. Paper towns! Uh, And these aren't a thing of the past, though, because in 2008, eagle-eyed cartography fans spotted Argleton on a Google map of England. But when you actually look at the Google uh, images of that space, it's just empty land. Shortly after word got around about it, uh, Google updated the map and it's no longer listed, nor will they admit that it was a paper town experiment. uh, As a spokesperson for Google said... Quote, While the vast majority of this information is correct, there are occasional errors. We're constantly working to improve the quality and accuracy of the information available in Google Maps. Which is ironic, because if someone said, "Hey, do we have a fake town on our map?" the first thing I would have done is Google it.
1: <laughs> so what does Google do? Who does to Google Google? <laughs> yeah, who does Google? They Bing something? I don't know. Oh.
0: Uh, Speaking of Google, by 2012, Google Maps Street View had covered about 5 million miles of road worldwide. And for context, it's only about 3 million miles from the Earth to the moon. So that was in 2012. It's safe to assume that they've gone there and back at least once by now. To get those images, they've employed traditional vehicles like cars, but they've also used trolleys, snowmobiles, tricycles, and a camel. Um, another fun fact While well, the Rudimentium Novatorium Sold for almost a million dollars in 2013 The most expensive map ever sold Was the Martin Waldsmuller That I talked about earlier Which is considered the first true world map The US Library of Congress paid Ten million dollars for it In 20, 2009 You can sure yet bet that they are making Their money back because they have licensed The image of it Oh yeah so. <laughs> Uh Another fun fact, the most expensive atlas ever sold was in 2007 when the 1477 Bologna Ptolemy, uh, the first printed atlas was sold for 3.12 million. So, a book, 3.12. It's a lot of money. Up until 1808, the very fictional city of El Dorado, the one made of gold, Uh, was believed to be real and still appeared on maps, but like suspected locations, of course. Of course. But I was checking our analytics today and somebody in El Dorado in the States is currently binge listening to us. Mm. So, hello! (laughs) Please send us a map of where you actually are. (laughs) Uh, Straight from mental floss is this little tidbit. Quote, in the mid-19th century, there was a cholera outbreak in London and a man named John Snow, not the illegitimate son of Ned Stark, a different one, uh, made a map of cholera cases and was able to determine a specific public water pump that was to blame. After doing this, he gets a lot of credit for halting the spread of cholera, and of course, for halting the spread of cholera ever since. So yeah. that's how we put two and two together about dirty water being the cause of
1: the poops. I That's brilliant. Because yes. it's an actual, like, useful way of... Yeah. <laughs> Not that maps aren't useful, but, like, so that's like a patient zero, like yes. someone went And did the research yeah. On the ground yeah.
0: uh, Last fun fact, if you have $100,000 kicking around, you may want To drop it on the world's biggest atlas Known as the Earth Platinum Which was published in 2012 It stands at 6 feet tall It's 4 feet wide and weighs about 440 pounds And there are only 31 copies printed in the world If you, you know, looking for a Christmas gift Idea for me I'm just... I'm saying.
1: <laughs> I don't think you can get it up your stairs, and I don't think your house is going to support that weight True. in the second floor. True. I have so
0: many... Like, I'm convinced that it's sagging more than when I first bought it, and I think it's the books. And I'm
1: terrified. <laughs>
0: I'm not going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> but let's finish up the story with the original jumping point, point... The original jumping off point for me, which is the Mental Floss article the literal translation of every country's name in one world map Uh, so this was put together by an Australian uh, credit card company and Mental Floss just like single boosted it because it's they did some cute graphics that I'm looking forward to posting Uh, so there are 200-ish countries in the world so I'm just going to give you some of the ones that caught my attention um, and where some of our listeners come from and keep in mind this is the etymological reconstruction of the literal translation of names given to these countries as we know them today so I figured this could be a little bit of a fun game for you and I. Let's start in Europe. What do you think the land of the Angles is? Which country? England? Yeah. That was an easy one. Yeah. Land of the foreigners? France. Wales. Ooh. hmm Land. Just land. <laughs> Just let like Scotland? I don't know. No, Finland. <laughs> Finland. Uh, flat borderland? Denmark. Cool. Huh, this one's for you. Land of many rabbits.
1: <laughs> You're forever. I don't know. Spain. Spain. I'm oh. <laughs> just going to see little, like, bunnies. Yeah, no, I'm going to see bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: huh, huh. Land of the people. China? Germany. Germany. We're in Europe. Mm, true. Sorry. So, Germany, they pronounce it Deutschland. Mm. So, I don't know how we get to Germany from Deutschland. But the same with, we say Munich, and there it's München.
1: So I. We have to anglophone everything I know. out. <laughs> Land of young cattle. Ooh. Again in Europe? Mm hmm. Uh, no. Belgium. Italy. Italy.
0: Mm. <laughs> uh, Belarus. It means white Russian. Mm. I think I reversed those. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say. I okay. got really excited. <laughs> it's like alcohol. Uh, and this one's weird. Uh, Water dwellers. Yeah. Estonia. Estonia means water dwellers in the native Mm. language. Yeah. Uh, Let's move on to Africa. Uh, Frontier. Mm. Egypt. It's on the frontier with this. The king's land. I'm going to be very terrible at this game. Ghana. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Holy land is Madagascar and Madagascar. (laughs) I I don't have kids. I watched that movie once. Uh, and beautiful Southern land.
1: Ooh, I don't know.
0: South Africa. Nice. That's the translation of their natural or native language. Uh, Middle East and Asia. (laughs) These are where like the badass names come through. It makes me like really jealous for like Canada, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) protected by fire. Ooh. I know. Right. Um, God, I suck at geography. Azerbaijan. Ooh, that's gonna put a real fun spin on the Olympics for me. I'll tell you that much. Uh, High and beautiful, Jordan. Uh, Korea. Korea, hmm. land of the thunder dragon. China. Bhutan. <laughs> I know, but again, Olympics are gonna be a lot more fun now that I know this. Uh, China is center kingdom. Oh, Oceana. Uh, southern land Australia Oh, well, that makes sense Land of the long white cloud New Zealand? Yeah, very elegant name Yeah, I go to the beach <laughs> Narrow I don't know how to pronounce it A-N-U-R-U Yeah, no. yeah uh, Frizzy haired men Is the original name for Papua New Guinea <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Uh, South America now Red like the ember Uh, Venezuela? Brazil. Brazil People born along the river
1: That would have been my Brazil one but, uh...
0: Paraguay Paraguay mm-hmm. uh, Where the land ends Chile? Yeah, that's a cute name, I like that And bird's tail Argentina Uruguay yeah. <laughs> In North America uh, in the navel of the moon not a clue Mexico
1: oh, <laughs> no, right?
0: That's, that's much prettier it's charming land of ma- mountains Haiti this is weird uh, st. Christopher's land of snows
1: st. Christopher lands lands of snows
0: yep snows literally as in welcome to Canada this is our hell that kind of snow Uh, St. Kitts and Nevis Nevis Nevis. still it's a freaking tropical island what snow do
1: they get none and Nevis is also very tiny it is and finally the village Canada yeah
0: everyone who's seen that heritage minute
1: Historic Canada let's
0: bring it on back (laughs) yes the first instance where we all learned that uh, white people are really dumb and make a lot of assumptions uh, assumptions when they meet native populations because they thought dude was pointing to the entire landmass when dude was just pointing to his home. Yeah, <laughs> So Canada means the village. <laughs> and that is my story about maps. So everyone Woo-hoo. rush out to your local CAA, pick up all the free maps that you can and uh, go to school and be a cartographer. <laughs> Or don't. Or don't. I know. Locksmith's probably a much more practical skill at this point. (laughs) But get a trade, people. (laughs) Yeah, a trade. Historian. Not so much. (laughs) So uh, that's my story for the week. Cool. Tell me your story.
1: Uh, So I don't know how we're going to link these two. Uh, this week's rabbit hole was caused by another local podcast called <laughs> So Do We Still Like This? Mm. The host Sean and his co host Mel were covering uh, the 1988 Sesame Street movie Follow That Bird. I don't, not even on my radar. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it's one of the few like full length movies that they did for Sesame Street. Right. <clears throat> and it revolves around Big Bird. Right, but I just saw the whole Jim Henson story, and I don't think that... I saw that I know. Um, so if you're like, what is this movie? Go <laughs> listen to uh, So Do We Still Like This, Follow That Bird episode. And they start at the end talking about Christmas gifts and toys, and how the seeming lost phenomenon of the toy of the year. Mm. Like, that sort of right insanity that Your would parents come. parents willing to, like, stab someone
0: to get the... Cabbage Patch doll for you? Yes.
1: Which I then consequently clipped
0: his nails and just totally destroyed the resale value on, because now there's little tufts of fluff coming out of my Cabbage Patch kid's feet.
1: So, you know that toy that every kid wanted? Yep. Uh, Parents would stand in line, try to get that one toy, the item would sell out, causing fights in the aisles. Yes, we still see that a bit during Black Friday, when people are fighting over getting one of those 50... Door crasher TV specials where you spend fifty bucks and get a two thousand dollar TV, and even today's popular items like they were saying like how that doesn't like popular items don't sell out anymore and they're not hard to get. That's not quite true because you'll see some of the items um, on my list are are from recent years that were pretty hard to get. Um, even uh, I had a hard time getting the frozen three wheeled scooter that Victoria wanted, so (sighs) I had to going to pick it up at one of the <laughs> Toys R Us stores when it arrives. Uh, so I figured I would look up some of those must-have toys that caused panic parents to lose their minds over the years. So let's take this walk down Nostalgia Lane with me. Yay! So, one of the first, well, I found a list that had, like, even older toys, but this is the first that I'm going to say is uh, the first toy of the year is Mr. Potato Head. Hmm. Did you know that in 1952, Mr. Potato Head made history as the first children's toy advertised on television? Oh. So that Mr. Potato Head paved the way for all of those glossy, bright-colored advertisements for children's toys. Cool. Um, so we all know that it worked, and as a model that they still use today. But did you know that its first version of Mr. Potato, Hope's t- Mr. Potato Head was a kit... Containing the eyes, ears, etc. That a kid would put on their own actual potato. Potato. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. It sold a mind-boggling 1 million units in its first year. In 1952. I feel like Don Draper probably had a hand in that. (laughs) One year later, Mr. Potato Head was joined in wedded bliss with his newly created Mrs. Potato Head. Of course. Heteronormative lifestyles everywhere. (laughs) Again, they were potatoes. At Trolls. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was a huge Trolls fan. So you had Trolls. I did, too. I had quite the Troll collection. I remember my uncle gave me this fancy high-end Troll that was from uh, a Trolls Around the World line. Mm, Yeah. And she was from Japan. Oh. And had, like, this pink silk kimono. Nice. Yeah, it was very pretty. I think I had one from, like, uh, the Netherlands with, like, the clogs and the... Yeah. Yeah. Um, But did you know that... Troll dolls were first big in 1959. I did not. It makes a lot of sense, but that is shocking news. How yeah. did they get the hair and the color? I don't know. But they <laughs> still looked much the same as they did when we had them. Like they really haven't changed a lot much. Uh in Christmas 1959, trolls were the must-have collection collectible for boys and girls. Part of their appeal was their wrinkly faces, big ears, messy hair, making them unlike any other dolls on the market. Trolls have come back in popularity with a new line of dolls, a major movie, a Christmas movie, and a TV series on Netflix. Ugh. I just watched the Christmas movie. <laughs> um, not the worst thing. It's not great, but whatever. Oh, life has beaten you down. It has. It's <laughs> not uh, the worst thing I've watched. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, it was 1959, came back around in sort of the 80s, 90s. Maybe it had a re- it Ritter Eve... <laughs> a version between then between then <laughs> between then but I don't know so Cabbage Patch Kids mm-hmm. when I think of toy craze I think of Cabbage Patch uh, dolls Yep. the hype surrounding the Cabbage Patch Kid in 19, uh, 1983 was insane Times reported near riots breaking out yep. over simple dolls one pennsylvania woman suffered a broken leg when a thousand person crowd turned into a violent department store mob while the store manager claimed he armed himself with a baseball bat to (laughs) defend his position behind the counter amid the chaos oh boy they knocked over display tables people were grabbing at each other pushing and shoving the adoption certificates and the backstory that came with the dolls fueled the feeling of personal connectiveness, making the, bo- the doll the toy that every girl wanted. Yeah, but like that whole concept
0: is just so skeevy to me. Like, here, give your child an 18 year long responsibility of adopting another child. Like, what? Like, just get a
1: doll in a cabbage patch?
0: Yeah, like just. So
1: weird, like, I know. girls get brainwashed so early. We have no hope. My Both my girls have Cabbage Patch dolls. One was given to them by someone we used to work with. Right. Uh, but I don't think they even know that they have names. There you go. They just play with them. Please uh, don't give them the adoption certificates at any point. Ah, oh, they're up in a distra- box. There. Um, What was I going to say? If I remember correctly, my sister and cousin really wanted one, but they were sold out. I'm guessing Sears, because there wasn't too many places to buy toys back home in the early 80s. Um, Probably the Sears catalog. Uh, So my aunt up here in Ontario sent three down. One for my sister, my cousin, and like the three-year-old little me. Mm. Uh, I think that she might have gotten them in upstate New York back when, like, cross-border oh. shopping was po- was popular. Was but best. I remember, like, my mom and my aunt having, like, a real hard time, like, telling the story, obviously, because I was three at the time. Um, and then having to, like, have my Aunt Sandra send them. Right. Do you still remember the name of yours? Uh, I think it was Charmaine, which is easy because it's my mom's I name. Think. Yeah. Mine was Christopher, and he was bald. He was, like, a newborn baby. I still have mine.
0: Yeah. Mine's kicking around somewhere, too. Yeah. Toe floof and everything.
1: (laughs) Uh, uh, Transformer action figures. Mm -hmm. 10 million Transformers were sold in 1984. So this would be probably the toy craze that my husband would remember, because we still have some of his. Because his mom is like a pack rat. Ah. Love you, Debbie. Which is a bit of a hoarder. Um, So I think we're hopefully done now, but every now and again she'll drop off like bins of 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 his stuff. Um... This franchise, France, franchise's cartoons and unforgettable catchy commercials propelled the shape-shifting alien robots to the top of Santa's to-do list. The Autobots and Decepticons were in short supplies around the holiday, but ultimately Hasbro took a ra- home around $80 million from the product line in 1984. Can't hate the player. <laughs> uh, Transformers are still bringing home the bacon. Yep. In 2010, Toys R Us... Uh, declared them as one of their best to be some of their best-selling toys for the last 25 years, and they're still making them. Hasbro has launched a new Transformer cartoon aimed at younger kids that starts in I think January, and I'm sure will come with a toy line, because it's on Treehouse, that's how I know Uh, about it, and that it's aimed at like younger kids, because that's the whole point of Treehouse. Also, they're going to get the nostalgia from our millennial generation. Which is why I've made my kids watch Inspector Gadget. Looney Tunes, man. Looney Tunes. The new Inspector Gadget. The old Inspector Gadget, not the new one, because that's just an abomination. <laughs> so this is a toy that we've talked about in the past. It is! It's awful. <laughs> like, I'm glad we're drawing these lines. <laughs> uh, Teddy Rapspin. So we have talked yeah. about you had one. Good old dads. Uh, roughly a decade before Tickle Me Elmo, kids were yearning for a different animatronic stuffed friend. Teddy Rapspin was designed by Disney Im- Imagineer Ken. 4C and moved its mouth and eyes in sync with stories that played from a cassette in its back. Ruxpin inspired additional books and even a 1987 animated TV series. I loved it. Meanwhile, black market sellers were nabbing doubles to triple the retail price for The Furry Friend when its extreme popularity caused holiday shortages. I think this was my
0: first, like, year... Toy of the Year was the Teddy Ruxpin of it all. I don't know if I got it for Christmas, but... I never had, had a country. Teddy, but yeah.
1: That, that oh that time was t- teddy
0: so awesome. So creepy, but so awesome. <laughs> Good old Ted's.
1: So, uh, The Talk Boy. I vaguely remember this. This portable audio cassette player and recorder was conceived and used as a prop for the 1992 film Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. Mm. After the success of the film... Young fans demanded a real-life version of the Talkboy. Released by Hasbro, the Talkboy became so popular during the holiday season in 1983—I think it was—that the company was forced to pull the product's ads due to shortages. That's the one that looked like um, a Walkman with like little dick-like
0: progression, projection yeah. off the back in gray.
1: Again, it wasn't a real product until after the movie had came out, and then so many people were looking for it that Hasbro produced that yeah. smart. Yeah, but again, it was in such short supply that they actually pulled the ads from market. Tickle Me Elmo. The infamous Tickle Me Elmo shopping frenzy of 1996 involved stampedes, scalpers, arrests, and multiple injuries. I think that was the last true Toy of the Year craze. Unless you're going to school me on some more, I'm sure. Oh, I'm going to school you on some more.
0: This is like the biggest one I remember. Yeah.
1: Uh, Rosie O'Donnell helped kick off Elmo Madness by featuring the Sesame Street toy on her talk show in October. By Black Friday, 1986, the electric stuffed Muppet was sold out at stores across the country and chaos ensued whenever they were restocked. Walmart employee Robert Walter told people about being caught in a stampede when his store received a late night shipment of the coveted gift. I was pulled under a trample. The crotch was yanked out of my brand new jeans, said the clerk, <laughs> who suffered a pulled hamstring, injuries to his back, jaw, knees, a broken rib, and a concussion from the stampede. I hope this guy has sued Walmart and is living large off of the multi-million dollar settlement he could have gotten. He rem- The last thing he remembers was being kicked with a white Adidas before he became unconscious. Elmo wants
0: to be your friend in hell. <laughs>
1: The Tamagotchis! Yeah! Which I got at the tail end. So you had one. Cool. I did not. But I knew about them. But I it was also, for you. me, I was 17 at the then. time. Yeah. Uh, in, 1990, in 1997, a handheld digital pet created in Japan housed in a keychain-sized ch- egg-shaped computer equipped with a three-button interface. As soon as the tag was removed, an egg would appear, hatch, and then the owner would have to care for their brand-new v- virtual pet. Feeding and entertaining it, as well as cleaning up after him or her. If the pet was left unattended for about five or six hours and died. Oh, it made a sad little sound too. Did it? it was terrible. It was very dramatic. At a whopping $150 million in sales, it's one of the most popular toy fads. And if you're feeling nostalgic, you can play the free iOS, Amazon, uh, Android app. Tamaguchi l.i.f.e, L.I.F.E.
0: as she while is I download it. Um, currently looking it up these things are also back physically though because my friend Katie has a 10 year old and she just put up a post on her um, Instagram Tamagotchi um, where she was uh, the kid was out and she was babysitting the
1: Tamagotchi last night <laughs> snap bracelets are back my kids have snap mm. bracelet snap bracelets My Tamagotchi forever.
0: I know what I'm doing tonight. (laughs) See if I can keep this one alive longer than the last one. I got mine at the tail end of the craze, so, like, it wasn't, like, cool to have it anymore. So I let
1: it die, and then it just lived on top of our microwave. (laughs) Which I think a lot of... Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Beanie Babies. Oh, yeah. Okay. And because of your age, I was thinking when you think of Toy Craze, you might think of Beanie Babies. During the height of their popularity in the mid to late 90s, many people were convinced their Beanie Baby collections were actually a clever investment. Yep. And that the small stuffed animals would one day be worth thousands. Kids and even some adult buyers made sure to keep their collections tags intact as to not increase their resale value. Decrease. Decrease, sorry. Uh, the rarity was controlled by Ty Warner, the maker of the Beanie Babies, who would arbitrarily take certain Beanie Babies off the market, making them hard to find collectibles and that customers would pay hundreds of dollars for. Yeah.
0: My, friend, my best friend Anna at the time was a massive collector. I feel bad now for the amount of mockery that I gave her off of it, but um, her mom was really into it, too. And I remember driving to Maxville with them one day to buy a specific Beanie Baby at, a, like, a small collector shop out there. You could have, like, I was so befuddled, but the amount of money that got sunk into that collection. And it's now worth 20 bucks. <laughs> and then there's that picture online of uh, a divorce settlement in the 90s where the court just dumped the big old pile of Beanie Babies and, like, the husband and wife were like, splitting up who was going to get what. Have you ever seen that photo? No. Oh, it's going to appear on social media, I'll tell you that much. It's wild. Like, it was a divorce settlement. They couldn't agree on who was going to get what. So it was like oh you-pick, you-pick, you-pick situation.
1: Uh, Furbies. Oh, yeah. Demon spawn. This weird Satan spawn <laughs> captured the heart of children by speaking Furbanese <laughs> at first and then slowly learning English as their owners played with them. Lots of people believe that Furbies were created by foreign powers to spy on people. And if that is true, then they succeeded because they sold 40 million units in the first three years. Dang, yo. Although, if you did create if they were created by foreign power, that's a lot of, like, data to dig through. True. So, they probably weren't as happy with the success. Yeah, (laughs)
0: victims of their own success. Really, it's an AI version of a popple, though. I know. We have our popples. We
1: don't need these. (laughs) We talked about this. We talked about these as well. (laughs) Uh, They were so... Sorry. Uh, the part owl, part hamster, part mythical forest creature part was... demon. <laughs> all demon. All demon. <laughs> was the must-have toy of 1998. They were so popular during the holiday season that the retail price was bumped from $35 to a whopping 100 Again, you can't hate the
0: player, but
1: jeez Louise. <laughs> so when I was listening to the... Um, so do we still like this? They were talking about the last sort of uh, toy craze or Christmas craze item that they could think of was the Nintendo Wii, mm. which was released in November 2006. And Sean told the story about like how people were lining up and he called and they're like, well, actually, if you want to get it, we should get stock in like two days. But you should probably be here. Like people lined up outside stores for days to get it. Right. And his mom, he grew up in a small town around here his mom was like, well, I'm going out today. I'll see if, like, when I'm out shopping and she went in somewhere and they had one and she just bought it and walked out. Oh, she found the unicorn, man. So we're talking about, like, he was say like, that I think that's the last, like, true uh... But I should talk about a few more. So there actually has been more since 2007. Uh, so it was released in 2006 but the console was quickly, still quickly disappearing from shelves by Christmas 20... Uh, 2007. Wired called the gaming system perpetually sold out in the months leading up to the holidays, as Nintendo struggled to match their production with the ever-increasing demand. The Wii was sort of surprisingly popular. Like, they expected it to be popular. They didn't expect it to have the level of appeal that it did. Because you think of game systems, you think of sort of niche But, like, you think about the Wii... um, Everybody from young kids to adults and even seniors in retirement homes were using the Wii. I think so that's
0: why, like, that's they should have banked on it being so successful.
1: But it's just not like they, a PlayStation
0: where it's all, like, first-person shooter. But it
1: was the first one of that kind. It was the first one to do that. So they weren't sure how it was going to go over. And then all of a sudden it went over gangbusters. Like, even I bought a Wii, which I have not note in here. Um I can attest that I even had one. It's my first game and only game console that I ever bought. Um, now I got it a little later, probably in about two thousand and eight, and I used my shoppers optimum points to buy Some it because I had like enough built up. Yep. Yeah, but, uh, yes. but I bought the Wii, and we still have it at home. I don't think it works, but like, <laughs> yeah, that was sort of like always short stocked. Yeah. For months and months and months. Um, Zuzu Pets. This sounds familiar. I vaguely remember this. I feel like I've blocked it out mentally. So these electronic toy hamsters, which cost about $8 at superstores, were selling for more than $60 on sites like Amazon and eBay. Dang. Around Christmas 2009. Zuzu Pets have crossed that tipping point where scarcity is part of the appeal of the product, said Seth McGowan, a toy industry expert, when he was talking to Time. Getting it gives you some extra social standing. Yeah, I got my hamster. I work this system. <clears throat> I know a guy. <clears throat> the small cooing and zooming pets are still popular today. Let's see what's pets. Um, oh, yeah, okay. They look
0: familiar. Yeah, my niece had them. Um, you know what's uh, cheaper is the $3 hamster you
1: get at uh, PetSmart. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. But you actually have to feed and clean that one's cage these you don't
0: oh it's not like a keep it alive situation
1: nope no. they're um, just like an electronic hamster that you just click on and then they zoom under like they're literally like a little car i feel like that would be fun for the first 5 minutes <laughs> um so here are a few recent holiday toy crazes so the frozen elsa doll Ugh,
0: still uh, haven't seen that movie
1: it's actually not bad <laughs> Uh, I've seen much worse. Uh, <laughs> many parents would probably feel particularly anxious in the months leading up to Christmas 2014 following the wild success of the movie Frozen, doll shortages meant that some kids wouldn't couldn't have their own mini Elsas and that just wouldn't and just and they just wouldn't let it go. <laughs> in April 2014, the precious products were selling for upwards of $1000 on eBay and Disney stores had placed two Placed a two frozen item limit on customers. Employees at the Disney Times Square location even told the New York Post that physical fights had broken out over the toys. Luckily, the company addressed the crisis and properly restocked by the holidays when frozen products flew off the shelves. So, at the start of the year, they were having a shortage, but they, being Disney, were like, we're not going to miss out on cash, so let's right. just keep pumping these babies let's out. Get
0: those sweatshops sweating.
1: Yeah. <laughs> No other product is being made. Well. Uh, Hatchimals. Okay, yep. Yeah. that was just recent. So this interactive toy started as an egg and needed your child's love in order to hatch.
0: I saw a lot of parents on Instagram that year actually spending the time to hatch those goddamn things.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> after enough care and attention, the egg would be ready to hatch into a furry creature that could be raised from a baby to toddler to kid. The toy can learn to repeat what you say, to walk, to dance, and to play games. I remember from hearing from kids that this was the toy they just had to have. And I also know how hard it was to find at Christmas time, and that they were not cheap. <laughs> and also, after Christmas, a lot of parents complained that the toy lost its appeal as soon as it hatched. <laughs> right, exactly. No one cared about Growing it and letting it learn to dance. Get yourself a Tamagotchi, and then it lives on top of the microwave for the rest of the year, and <laughs> no one cares. fingerlings probably the most recent one. These adorable little plastic baby monkeys hang onto your finger and know when they're being touched and spoken to, and even hung upside down. They come to life with about forty ways to play and fifty sounds to let you know how they are feeling. These sounds include farts and burp noises and actual monkey, like, realistic monkey sounds. hmm They have blinking eyes and a curly hanging tail. Manufactured by high-tech robotics and entertainment companies, they are part of a popular trend of robotic pets. And they flew off the shelves. This was just, I think, 20, uh, 2017? I've never in my life seen these things. I mean, it was even last year. I remember talking to my mom about the craze as my cousin was trying to track one down for her daughter. So what? You just like wear it around all the time? I don't know. Look it up. So what is 2019's hot toy? Amazon put out a list in November and on the the top three of the list was a Candy Locks doll.
0: The fuck? I
1: don't know. (laughs) Uh, A Crayola color chemistry set. Okay, that sounds fun. And I'd I'd like that for Christmas. (laughs) And a baby shark hand puppet. No. (laughs) Victoria had the baby, has the baby shark hand puppet on her list for Santa, but we did not get it for her.
0: Santa's thinking things through for mommy and daddy on that one.
1: Yeah, we got a bunch of other stuff, but I was like, she's not going to play with it. No. And I mean, at this age, they're just pointing, like, all we did for our, first the list for Santa is I had a couple of, like, like one catalog from Toys R Us and one little catalog from Indigo, and they just, we cut things out of there, and it was like a decoupage. Decoupage list. Decoupage list. So that's my story about toy crazes as we start into the Christmas month. So on that
0: list, I don't think we got very many of those toys, did we?
1: Nope. I I had if we did, they
0: weren't around Christmas.
1: I had a Mr. Potato Head. But, like, not in 1952. I had troll dolls. And I had a Cabbage Patch kid. And probably in around the 1983, 1884, because I was pretty young. Uh-huh.
0: That's about it. And I had Teddy, and a Cabbage Patch, and Tamagotchi. And I had a Wii, but very late. And I wasn't allowed to have games. (laughs) Because, look at me. They were hoping I'd go outside and exercise. (laughs) <laughs> both of, uh, both of us were unhappy because <laughs> neither of us got what we wanted. <laughs> in that equation. But uh, yeah, and you know what? I don't ever remember throwing a, a fit uh,
1: about not getting what I wanted for Christmas. Yeah, for not getting these toys. And maybe that's just not what we wanted. Like I remember, um, what was like the toy that you remember getting that you were like super excited about? can't even think of it now.
0: Like, this is going to sound really sad, and it's not a toy, but I really wanted the Harry Potter books. So I got the first, like, four Harry Potter books. Three Harry Potter books. That's that's what I remember, of like, specifically asking yep. for and getting.
1: I always, as a kid, wanted a toy train set. Mm. Yeah. Like, really, really wanted one. But our house wasn't very big, mm. and I didn't get one when I was a kid. So I have a... Collection of light up Christmas houses, and I've been yep. collecting them since I was probably like 10, 11. Mm-hmm. So, one year, my parents, my mom got me this train set for my Christmas village. I was Aww. a teenager. Best present ever. <laughs> like, honestly, best present ever. <sighs> yes. That was, I was like so excited, even though I was probably 13, 14 at the time, to finally have my train set. Uh, Best Christmas present ever, though, because my sister was kind of a dick. Love you. Um, but she was one of those people who always found the presents, right? unwrapped them, okay. looked at them, and then would wrap them back up again. She and I would get along very well. <laughs> if she found your present, she would unwrap it, show it to you, wow. even if you did not want to see it. It's kind of a dick move. <laughs> so... Both of us knew a lot of our toy, a lot of our presents. So one year, my mom... My my sister was probably 15, 16 by this point. My mom was starting to get wise to, like, my sister never seemed that excited about Christmas. Right. And uh, always seemed to know sort of have a sense of what she got. So my aunt, again, the same one. uh, When they went to New York in the summer, they had bought leather jackets for her and my cousin. Okay. And sent them down. And I mean, I think... My cousin Sonia could tell the story about coming across the border, like, dressed in four layers of clothes, <laughs> so you could smuggle the clothes yep. basically in. Yep. Because back when cross-border shopping, like, things were so much cheaper. Yeah. Our dollar was doing really well. And uh, so my mom had gotten the, the jacket when my aunt came down and had left it down at our neighbor's house. Okay. And didn't go and get it until... Like Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. Yeah. And then she purposely put it all the way in the back of the tree <laughs> on my sister's side. And then, like, my sister was like, Oh, thanks. This is a great present. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> and my mom was like, There's still one more. And Tasha's like, No, there isn't. <laughs> yeah! I was like, Yes. Keep yes. it cool, man. <laughs> so she went, oh, what's this? And she I'm just, for me, this is what is it? What is it? She opened up, She's like, Because she really wanted a leather jacket. Mm. And uh, she opened it up, and she's like, oh, my God, where did you hide this? And so I was like, I know! <laughs> <laughs> you ruined it. you ruined your own game. My sister's like, where have you been hiding this? My mom's like, I knew you've been finding the presents. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, she has been. Why do you think I look so disappointed every Christmas? Uh, the one time I found my own present, my mom and my mom admits not her best hiding move. So I used to do all the vacuuming. Mm. That was one of my chores. My mom used to have like this round table, like plywood table that you used to put the tablecloths on, very Mm. popular in the 80s especially. The tablecloth that went right down to the floor. And um, we had a fairly new um, vacuum cleaner that once sucked the hem right out of it. Mm. So I used to pick up everything, like pull everything up. So one day I was vacuuming in my parents' room and I pulled the tablecloth up to tuck it out of the way so I wouldn't suck it into the vacuum cleaner again. Right. And there was a Christmas porcelain doll just <laughs> tucked under the <laughs> table. And I'm like, "Wow, well, Come on, Mom. We were not trying very hard, are we? <laughs> Especially because I actually do the vacuuming. Right. And you just left
0: that there.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: we lived in a house in Toronto for a couple of years. And in the basement, there was like a little... Like, just this little storage room that had like a plywood door on it and a lock, and the light switch was on the outside. And so, my parents were hiding my toys in there, uh, but didn't think to unscrew the light bulb. So, I was able to turn on the light and see in the crack in the door what everything was. <laughs> and it lasted great until my dad figured out I was doing it, and then he unscrewed the light bulb. But that was the year I got the um, McDonald's Shake Maker. Like McDonald's came out with like a line of toys Where you could like make their quote unquote Food at home but it was like The fries were just like Cinnamon toast for example and the shake Was um you just take like a Pudding packet and mix it with milk And like shake like Blend it up by hand And then the idea is it's just cold Enough to just thicken it just enough to Like make it feel like a shake But basically you're just like drinking Watered down unfirm pudding (laughs) Which also explains this lovely physique that I'm rocking, because <laughs> I love that thing. <laughs> You're like, I gotta get me some pudding drink right now. I know. It was also around the same time as I got my uh, Easy Bake Oven. Oh my god, that was my Again, favorite toy. another contributor to this physique. <laughs> I
1: don't know, I love the Easy Bake Oven. And even for, like, years afterwards, my mom kept the little, um
0: the pans. The little pans. See, and I went the other way. I lost the pans, but I had kept
1: everything else. Um, So, like, as a kid, growing up, when my mom would make a cake, she'd always make me a little mini Aww. cake, so that I could eat it right after it came out of the oven, and right. I didn't have to wait for it to cool to be icing or anything, right. so I had my own, like, mini cakes. Yeah. Like, the Easy Bake Oven is a genius. I know. It's just like a 100-watt light bulb. <laughs> it's not quite anymore, so you can't do the same things you used to when what? we were kids. Yeah, it's not quite as powerful. Why? they like, worried about kids, like, burning themselves and getting hurt? <laughs> that was part of the adventure. <laughs> That's how you learned how to, like, kitchen safety. <laughs> like, don't know. touch hot stuff. Duh. <laughs> Next year, I'm going to be like, so, Michelle, Ian, can I get Lane an Easy Bake Oven? He's the first one to turn eight, <laughs> and I really want to buy one. They don't
0: look as good, though. No, they don't. Like, they now they're, like, all, like, rounded edges. Like, yeah. I don't know. And they have a black one and a pink one. <sighs> There's just, like... I'd love to get,
1: like, an original.
0: Yeah, very rarely do I say the 80s, 90s aesthetics are, like, better than, like, current modern, but, like, in this one category, like, let's go back to the olds.
1: Although it's also really hard to get, like, an incandescent 100-watt bulb right now. So head on out to the dollar store, honey, they're there. (laughs) Well, like, most of them are now. Oh, are they? Yeah, the um, LEDs and.
0: Oh, no, but you can still get them at the dollar store, the old school ones. So it's in retrospect a very dangerous toy <laughs> yeah. where they tell you to like melt stuff on the top of it, but make sure it's in a metal container because it's gonna get so smoking hot, you're gonna melt the plastic, kids. <laughs> but,
1: but like just touch it,
0: but let's like leave eight year olds to experiment with it in the kitchen.
1: Genius. <laughs> I don't even think, like, it came with an oven mitt or anything. No, because it
0: came with the, the plastic uh, stick. Oh, yes. With, like, I the remember little curve, the stick. Yeah. And you'd, like, push it in and then push it all the way through, and then, God help you, catch it at the other end.
1: Mine did not have that. Mine had the door, so it oh, looked a little bit more like...
0: Um, an actual oven.
1: Yeah. Or, like, a microwave oven, almost, mm. or a toaster oven. So you'd pull it down, and the tr- the, the little grate would come out a little bit, right. and then you'd put the... Mine was the old... M1 and then mine did not have the... the, the... Old... Mine did not have the melting tray on the top. mm But yeah, I loved the Easy Bake Oven, it was like my favorite
0: toy as a kid. I still crave Easy Bake Oven brownies from time to time.
1: Because like, any toy that I could make cake out of, like, fuck.
0: (laughs) Also, adults, I guess adults do have them, they're called toaster ovens, but like, it's the packaging size, like, if I want a brownie, I don't want to make an entire pan because I know me, I'm going to eat the entire pan. So maybe yeah. I just need to go to the, like, the toy store and like buy the
1: Easy Bake Oven like equipment accessories. <coughs> like the the mug cakes that you can buy. Yeah. Like the packages, they're actually not bad. Don't encourage the Sandy. I know. <laughs> I used to have them at work. I'd have like three or four boxes. And then like if everybody was having it, like Sarah or someone was having a bad day, I'd make her a mug cake. I never saw this. This must yeah, have was been a post-meet. Yeah, yeah, this Aww, is, yeah that was a post. That was my, coming back from my second mat leave. <laughs>
0: Well, that is our episode for this week. We hope you enjoyed. If you'd like to see our show notes, get all the links to our um, information, head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. While you're there, check out the merch tab, which takes you to our Redbubble store and our support tab, which takes you to the Patreon website.
1: If you want to see what we're doing on social media or see some of the fun uh Pictures and stuff we'll oh, link to this week. This week's going to be a yeah. wild ride. Um, you can check us out on Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod, at Facebook Rabbit Holes Podcast page, and Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. If you want to send us a note, let us know about a rabbit hole that you've fallen down, you can either DM us on one of those. Uh, slide into our
0: DMs. Slide
1: into our DMs. No dick pics
0: because I will post them in revenge. <laughs> I don't care. What's Instagram going to do? Shut
1: me down. Go for it.
0: (laughs) Gloves are off.
1: Uh, Or you can send us an email. Probably better. But still no dick pics. (laughs) She will still post them. I will. Um, At rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. If you like what we are doing. Proud of you. Uh, you can post a review, recommendation, rate us, uh, just let your friends and family know all about us and how awesome we are. Now that I'm leaving the current position, I'm starting to, like, tell people, so I'm going to bring the business cards in and start leaving them around. Smart. Yeah. (laughs) Plus, they gave me a tour. I got a tour of the podcast
0: studio. Right. Which is sweet. You should make friends there so we can be after our drop-ins.
1: I know. I don't know if they do that, but... But yeah, lovely.
0: Well, that's it for this week. There's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye.